listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Welcome back to Score to Death, the podcast, the official companion podcast to the book, Score to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. My name is Jay Blake Fischera, and the goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the amazing composers that do it. This is part two of a fascinating interview with writer, director, and composer John Harrison. In part one, we spoke at length about his collaborative relationship with the late, great George Romero. And we dove deep into John's scores for Romero's iconic films, Creepshow and Day of the Dead. You don't need to be familiar with part one to enjoy this episode, but if you'd like to check out part one, as well as extensive interviews with 15 other amazing film music composers, you can find them in my new book, Score to Death 2, More Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. The new book, as well as its predecessor, Scored to Death, are available on Amazon from other book retailers or from me directly at scoredtodeath.com. This week, John and I are going to explore his roles as a writer and director, discussing how he adapted some truly iconic novels for the screen, how he works with composers as a director, and he shares some valuable lessons he learned from his years working with George Romero. Okay, here it is, part two of my conversation with John Harrison. So after Day of the Dead, you had said that you had already been working on directing and scoring Tales from the Dark Side, the television show, but Day of the Dead kind of marks the end of your composing days kind of as a composer, and you go into directing feature films and television and stuff. Uh, Before we jump into kind of that aspect of your career, I would love to know if there are any specific lessons, things that you learned by working with Romero that you could maybe share with listeners that are either composers or filmmakers. I'm sure you kind of learned both as like, as for being a filmmaker, what did you learn from Romero? And then as a composer, did you learn anything from Romero? Oh yeah. My God. Just listening to all of the scores that he had collected, that I had collected sitting down talking about why we liked him. One of the things that I think he and I both shared, but he really emphasized with me was story. So we talked about this a little bit earlier, you and I, Yeah. that the music really had to play a narrative role in the movies, not just a bed of music to just give you a feeling of, of what, what the movie was like, but to actively participate as a, as a story element. Yeah. And I know that sounds a little cerebral, but I think composers will know what I'm talking about. And it can be with melody, it can be with sound, it can be with, you know, modulation from one key to another. You know that you, you got the tools to tell a story musically. And one thing that I, and maybe, I, I don't know whether the younger composers will agree with this or not, but one of the things that I encourage everybody to do is to listen to classical music, to constantly listen to great classical music and, 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 and obscure classical music. You mentioned Varese, for instance, yeah. and uh, Cage and people like that that are really pushing the boundaries of how music communicates because those sounds and elements can be used really effectively in film. And so 
I'm I'm not a huge fan. I mean, I appreciate it when I, I I was just watching Guardians of the Galaxy with my daughter this afternoon, and it's got a lot of popular music in it, and it's it's fun, it's effective, it says something about the scene. Tarantino does this a lot. A lot of people, it's become very a, a very popular way to score movies. But for me, give me a Goldsmith or a Bernard Herrmann <laughs> or a Corn Gold any day. Yeah. You know, it's just uh, John Williams. I mean. Uh, Brian Tyler, um, you know, it's just the music should really be an integral part of the movie. And uh, as much as I say the cinematography or the production design, it should exist for that movie. So I guess that's the only advice I could give as a as a composer. Yeah. Um, but also as a filmmaker, because that's the kind of music I like. And when I haven't been composing, like uh, for my own stuff, I want to work with musicians that do I, my my last film, uh, Clive Barker's Book of Blood. I found this wonderful composer in the UK, Guy Farley, who shared the same sensibilities as I did in terms of what music could be. So that's what I like. We'll be jumping around a little bit, but since you brought up Book of Blood. talk about that film a little bit it's a film that i like a lot thank you and you found a composer that was like-minded but i would love to talk to you about like kind of the process that you worked with him i interviewed john carpenter for the book but we didn't talk a whole lot about how he worked with other composers since i have the opportunity to talk to you who has both scored and directed composers for their own pictures. I would love to kind of get the director's perspective of working, uh, in this case, on Book of Blood. How did you convey your ideas? What was that collaboration like? Well, I didn't know Guy. He was introduced to me by the producer. And at first, I wasn't sure he was right for the picture. I had a much more atonal feeling about where it should go. But then I, I sat down with Guy and I went over to his studio and started talking to him. And he had a wonderful technician that worked with him. And so it was very similar to my process with George. He would write stuff and then I would come over and listen and we would talk about it and we could modify it right there on the spot with the picture. His gear was all set up and he could make changes and I could say, look, at this point, why don't we just uh, drop out the cellos here and just go with that single violin theme and and let it play let's see what that looks like well we could do all of that yeah so i actually had hands-on experience with him to do that and so we could fashion this we could tailor make the score to the picture he came up with the theme first played it for me and I liked it, uh, made a couple of suggestions. We would look at the picture. I would talk him through the movie and say, this is what we're doing now. I did temp that picture. My editor, Harry Miller, who's a phenomenal editor and a wonderful musician in his own right and has a library of music cues, which are just, I mean, he can just call up something in a split second. Sure. We temped the movie. And so I played that for Guy with the proviso that he did not have to imitate any of it. Yeah. 
it was just like, this is emotionally where I'm going. And uh, so he came up with his own ideas and themes and motifs, and we just worked on them. Not not exactly as closely as I was able to do with George, but uh, pretty damn pretty damn close. I would go over to his in Battlesea, uh, Battersea Park. I would go over to his studio, and we would sit down there and just look at the picture and work it out. And then uh, uh, he went into the studio and then delivered the, the final cues. I mean, it, it's an interesting process because. I did a lot of my own scoring for Tales from the Dark Side TV episodes. Yeah. That was somewhat of necessity because they didn't have the money to hire other people and I could do it. And so uh, I would, you know, after rap, I would go home and I would just noodle things out and then eventually record them and bring them in. And they were only half hour shows anyway, so it wasn't too hard to do. But it was, it's just too hard when you're directing the picture and cutting the picture to even think about, nobody has the time to allow you to take eight weeks off to go write the score. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to, you have to find other people to work with. I had the same process on Dune and fortunately I was able to work with that music editor quite a lot. Yeah. And uh, his name escapes me at the moment, but we could really fashion the cues to the picture. Tales from the dark side. I found two other composers that I really liked I did one segment, they did the other two. Um, so you have to kind of, as a director, I've had to compromise, but I've looked for kindred spirits in terms of, you know, what I'm after. Sure. We'll work backwards and jump around a little bit because I have a lot of questions about some of the films that you directed. And since you brought up Dune, you you did like a mini series of Dune in 2000. Two of them. Yeah. Graham Revel, who is a kind of a big heavy hitter composer. I mean, he's, he's, he's composed music for a lot of great films, including a lot of kind of memorable horror films. Yeah. But because it was TV, did it, did the process differ? Cause I know that in TV often the director doesn't have a lot of contact with a composer. Um, what was your process working with the uh, rebel on Dune? Well, this was a, a really wonderful experience all the way around because Richard Rubenstein produced it, and he and I had had a great history uh, going all the way back to the Romero days. And so I'm not saying I had an auteur relationship on that picture, but it was pretty damn close. And so I was able to uh, – my editor, Harry Miller, introduced me to, to Graham, and I went out to his studio, and he was interested in doing it. And I was able to get uh, the company to sign on. So we really did have, we treated this like a, a film. It wasn't like episodic television. Sure. This was a major miniseries. And um, so it was like a six-hour movie, basically. And Graham had me come out one day, and he said, I think I've got a theme. I think I've got it. So okay. And he played it for me, and I loved it. We had talked about tonally what we were after, and... Dune, as you know, is set on Arrakis, the desert planet. And so I, I, I didn't want to imitate Arabian music, Arabic music, but I wanted it to have, uh, I didn't want it to have a European classical music score, if that makes sense. Sure, yeah. So he came up with this wonderful theme, this wonderful melody. I said, yeah, I love it. So that became the basis 
for the rest of the score. Now, he did the score and recorded it, and then he had to move on to another project. Yeah. So I wasn't really able to sit down with him and Taylor make it to the movie, but his music supervisor, wonderful guy, was able to sit with me, and we spent a good, I'd say, two to three weeks with the score, because we were still editing, too, by the way, so things were changing. And so we had to make modifications, and tonally I wanted to do different things. And he had all the tracks up, so I would say, look, it's too big here. Let's take it down. Let's, uh, let's take some of the instrumentation out and go with uh, a more spare version of this particular cue. Or let's start the cue later than when Graham has it starting. Because we had a very limited spotting session on that because of our schedules. And we really weren't able to, again, like I was able to work with George and then others like Guy Farley and uh, you know, to, to really spot the music specifically. And even when you do that, by the way, Blake, and you, you probably know this, those things change. Yeah. You think, oh, man, it would be great if we, we start the music right here. Yeah, yeah. But then you watch it with the picture. No, man, it shouldn't start there. It should start like five seconds later. And uh, it should swell here. It shouldn't swell there. Or it's missing the hit here. She turns at that moment. The music should turn with it right at that moment. So you resync it so that the music hits with her, but then everything else is out of whack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you have to, uh, and this music editor was sensational. I wish I could remember his name because he would be able to manipulate the tracks in such a way he could slide one track under another by eight frames, 12 frames, and make it sync better. Uh, he was able to do all that kind of stuff. And so... To some extent, we were able to take Graham's score and tailor make it a little bit better in the music editing process before we got to the mix stage. So that was the process with that. And it was just a, a factor of time and other people's obligations that I wasn't able to have that kind of personal relationship with him that I had, say, with others. And when we did Children of Dune... a phenomenal composer named Brian Tyler. He, of course, is just, he's done so many huge movies now, but this was 2002, 2003, and he was just beginning to get into huge, epic kind of composing, which is what his forte is. And he came on board for children. And now I didn't direct children because I had a conflict with another project. And so I just produced it and wrote it, but I was involved in all the posts. And so I was able to work with Brian on, on that. Greg Utanis, who directed it, chose him and he made a fantastic choice because Brian is a, an extremely gifted composer and his score for children is, wow, it's, it's just great. I would love to talk to you though, because you know, you're a man of many hats, jack of all trades here. Oh, I'll do anything for a buck. <laughs> But as a writer, we've talked to working with composers as a director, when we've talked about you composing, but I'm also very curious, not in terms of the musical aspect of it, but like you said, you wrote the scripts for these Dune miniseries and you wrote the script for Book of the Dead, right. all of which you're adapting book source material. So as a writer, when you're adapting books to screenplay, 
What are some of the things you're looking to do? Did you learn anything along the way? Just to anybody that's doing that process, you know, that they might uh, be able to learn from your experiences. Well, I guess the one thing that I would say about my work in that arena, the ad- adaptations that I've done, is if I've chosen to do it, if I've been asked and I've decided to do it, I did it because I liked the source material. I've never taken a job where I've got the source material and then have said, well, this is crap. I'm going to invent my own (laughs) thing. Yeah. So, uh, and especially with Dune and with Clive's work, I mean, why would I want to reinvent the wheel there? The work is sensational. Oh, sure. I mean, both are obviously iconic pieces of literature. Yeah, they're awesome. But there is an adaptation process. I can't do those books uh, word for word because we'd be, you know, you'd be still watching them five years later. (laughs) So what you have to do, I think, is look for the core narrative of each. Um, Clive's adaptation on Book of Blood was completely different from the Dune kind of adaptations because we we had to put a couple of stories together for Book of Blood, whereas with Dune, I was just following Frank's work. I, I wanted to be as honest and as faithful to the underlying material as I could be translating it into moving images. So I guess the first thing that I do is I look for that core theme. What is the book about? And then try to find the narrative thread through the book that supports all of that. And that sometimes means you have to drop stuff out. You have to, you have to cut things and you have to make certain adaptations that are still true to the, the element of the book without being what the book is. And Dune, there's a perfect example in Dune. Every chapter of that book is introduced by a reminiscence from the diaries of Princess Erlen. She is not much of a character in the first book. She's hardly there, except for these introductions. And a lot of the book is very internalized. It's a lot of people thinking of things and dealing with their inner emotions, which are fascinating on the page, but it's very difficult to do on film. You can't just have a guy standing there staring at you and then with voiceover, I am thinking about what I'm going to do to that person or I feel that this way right now that you have to translate those things into dialogue. So what I did in the case of Irland was I made her a full character and so that she could convey right there on screen through her character what we were only reading about in her diaries. And I took all of the internal monologues of the book, and I turned them into dialogue between characters. The rest of it, I followed pretty much the structural, and I pitched this to the producers. I pitched the structure of the book to the producers. The book, if you recall, has three parts to it. Yeah. And the prophet Muad'Dib, and uh, I forget what the third one is titled in the book, the third part of the book. It's actually three books in one. And I said, this is how we're going to structure the miniseries. We'll do each book for a night. And so that's how we structured it. With Children of Dune, it was a little bit different because Children of Dune, we actually took the next two books, which was uh, Dune Messiah and uh, Children of Dune, and combined them into one miniseries because Dune Messiah was a very short book. It was not worthy of a whole miniseries. So I pitched the producers the idea of taking the next two books and carrying on the story of Paul and then his children and his specific Leto, who becomes the god emperor. Again, though, I tried to stay close to the book, 
using actual dialogue from the book, not always, but in cases where it was appropriate, and combining characters where necessary. Obviously, reading a book is such an internal experience. Your mind is making up the world. When you're looking at it on film, it's a very linear experience. You're actually participating in the world that I've created for you, and it goes from A to B to C all the way down to Z. And it's a straight-line narrative. Frank's books bounced around a lot, so I had to straighten it out. <laughs> yeah. By sticking to the book, though, by sticking to the story. Interesting. I would love to kind of jump back in time a little bit and talk about Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Okay. was a movie that I loved when I was younger. Yeah. <laughs> when I first saw it, I, I was probably a little too young when Creepshow came out to experience Creepshow like in theaters and stuff. And though I didn't experience Tales from the Dark Side, the movie in the theaters, you know, I'm, I'm of the video store generation. So right. Tales from the Dark Side, the movie was kind of a big movie for me growing up. And so it's always been something I've been really fond of. I would imagine, obviously, it comes out of your connection with Rubenstein and the show, right? Yeah, they had been talking about it. The show was very successful. And near the end of the fourth season, they were trying to figure out whether they could do a, a movie because... Creepshow had been successful as an anthology. Anthologies were a very difficult sell in Hollywood, but the show was pretty successful. And I think Richard felt that if he could do it for a price, it could work. And they approached me about directing it and I was ready to jump. Yeah. I had my doubts about it a little bit because I wondered whether it really could work or whether it would turn out to be sort of a pale comparison to Creepshow, which I didn't want to do. So it really sort of was going to depend on the kind of scripts that they got and uh, what kind of production team I could put together. But they were very supportive, and we were able to do it. And in that case, like, like Creepshow, I mean, I was inspired, obviously, by my relationship with George. I tried to give each one of those episodes its own unique identity and had a great wraparound story with the, the little boy that was being kept in a cell because <laughs> yeah. Debbie Harry was going to cook him and eat him for dinner. And so he had, like Scheherazade, he was able to keep the witch at bay by telling her fantastic stories as she peeled the potatoes. <laughs> and um, we had a fantastic cast for all of them. I mean, we had people like Buscemi and Julianne Moore, Christian Slater. I mean, and these were uh, early in their f careers, Steve and Steve Buscemi and Julianne were, you know, just beginning to uh, to come to the fore. And Jamie Remar, fantastic actor yeah. that I had had admired from afar for a long time, and and I talked him into doing it. So uh, it was really a lot of fun to do that that uh, that production. It was low budget. We had to scramble, but I think it came off pretty good. There's been this rumor about how the original conception for it was that it was going to be Creepshow three. Yeah, I don't know whether I don't know how that rumor started. Tom Savini, a, a friend of mine, has said in his estimation it is the true Creepshow three. You know, there was a Creepshow three, and I don't, I won't say too much about that. <laughs> 
But Tom has said, if you want to really see the, the the true Creepshow 3, watch Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Yeah. And I think that has kind of perpetrated this rumor that it was going to be Creepshow 3. It was never meant to be Creepshow yeah. 3. He wasn't talking literally. No, he wasn't. He wasn't. It was always meant to be Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. That was the brand name that Richard wanted to sell. So there was a story that George wrote that had been pegged for Creepshow 2. But they didn't have enough money to include it. And so Creepshow 2 only had three stories instead of four. And so Richard recycled it and brought it to me, Cat from Hell, to be part of Tales from the Dark Side. So maybe there's some confusion there. Yeah. But Tales from the Dark Side, even though it's an anthology, it stood alone from Creepshow. We didn't try to imitate the comic book nature of Creepshow or that kind of tone or style. It was an anthology, but it was it was different. You had mentioned earlier that you found composers to do the stories like Creepshow. Each story should have its own identity, and I would imagine finding different composers for those stories was part of that. So uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about working with those composers for each of those stories and conveying to them what identity you wanted for each story. Well, the same, uh, the same thing goes. As I was mentioning earlier, I wanted to give each one of those episodes its own identity. So we had The Mummy, which was a very classical, almost Raiders of the Lost Ark 40s feel to it. And I should say that I had a wonderful cinematographer on that movie, Rob Draper, who was able and who bought into this idea 100% and was able to give us a look for each one of them that was completely different. So the Mummy segment was that very kind of classic old Hollywood style. And uh, I was introduced to a composer named Jim Manzies, who was actually kind of a rock and roll musician, but he loved classical music and was able to come up with the kind of score that fit that perfectly. was an Australian dude and he uh, he really nailed it and the music I think works perfectly for that tone and feel. Cat from Hell on the other hand was going to be very monochromatic and very obviously supernatural but very uh, cold. It's a very nasty story. There's nobody to root for except <laughs> yeah. for the cat I guess. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so uh, Rob Draper and I wanted it to be very monochromatic and very cold. And I was introduced to this British composer, Chaz Jankel, who really got the sort of the atonal quality that I was looking for. It's not melodic. It's uh, not heavily orchestrated. It's very tonal, and it takes place all in this horrible mansion uh, that we, where we shot, actually. It used to be Mussolini's mansion <laughs> in the U.S., uh, owned by the Italian government when, when he was in power. So it fit perfectly the mood of the movie, and Chaz's atonal music really fit it to a T. And then Lover's Vow was this very romantic fairy tale. 
and we shot it in um, it's a contemporary fairy tale shot in New York uh, had this very kind of misty pastel look to it and so I wanted um, a kind of a romantic kind of music score to go under it and so I did that one myself then it was called tales from the dark side so we had to have donald's theme <laughs> and so donald came out and reimagined his theme and reorchestrated it donald rubenstein donald rubenstein he did that. He wrote the theme, enlarged on the Tales from the Dark Side theme. So that motif, da, 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 is prominent and became the end, main title and the end title. And he also, I got him to write the end of Betty when she gets shoved into the oven. He wrote that piece of music and that was very cool. Like I said, the film itself it has a kind of a special place in my heart. But the Lover's Vow story, I just rewatched the movie recently, you know, to prepare for this. And I just love the Lover's Vow story. It's so visually beautiful, obviously kind of thematically beautiful, but I also love your music for it. Is there anything you can talk about uh, other than wanting to key into the romantic aspects of that story that you can talk about your music? Well, by then I had an instrument called a Korg T3, and it had some wonderful sounds in it that were very atmospheric. That theme, if you listen to it, it has a very almost wind-like quality to it. So that you hear the melody in it, but it's very airy and it's very wind-like. And it just seemed to work perfectly. I did a little modification of it, but it seemed to work perfectly for the tone that I was going for in that piece. So I wrote on that. I, I wrote on the T3 a good portion of it. There are little things here and there that I do with piano and with bass and, and some other instruments, but it uh, is pr primarily the T3. and it just seemed to fit the mood. Rob's cinematography is fantastic. And the emotionalism of that story, I mean, it's just a fairy tale. The, the, the gargoyle turns into a human, falls in love with the guy, and he breaks his promise and puts her back in the curse. And, of course, she kills him for it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but it's, uh, it's a beautiful story. And the two actors were sensational. I mean, Ray Don Chong. We got her to play. Richard knew her and asked her if she would do it, and she said yes, fantastic. And I had met Jamie and talked him into doing it, and the two of them were great together. And they really made it, it – it's an interesting story because there's the beginning where he goes out and he's attacked by this gargoyle, and it makes him promise not to tell what he's seen. And he says, yeah, okay. And then he meets this beautiful babe – who turns out to be the gargoyle. She's been watching him 
in his studio from up, up on top of her building and she's falling in love with him. So she comes down and turns herself into a beautiful female and uh, marries him and has two beautiful kids with him. And then like an idiot, he breaks his promise <laughs> and tells the truth about how they met, not knowing that she is the gargoyle. Of course, that makes her transform back and off with his head. Yeah, it's a fantastic story. I mean, the little bit, uh, this idea of the curse reminds me a little bit of like Orpheus to a certain extent, but uh, I just adored it, you know, watching it recently. You know, it's been so interesting in general. One, I have like another podcast that I do that I talk about just movies in general, but then revisiting all these films with the score in mind for the book and, and now for the podcast, you know, some of these films are films that I haven't seen. They were really important to me and a big part of like kind of my upbringing, but then like I haven't seen them since maybe I was a teenager or my early 20s. Yeah. And so now when I rewatch them yeah. as an adult, you know, you bring like life experience, a whole different, <laughs> you know, you're different. So the movie plays completely different. Yeah, it's true. Then that story always kind of stuck out to me even when I was a kid because the idea of like the gargoyle and the creature effects are great in that. Well, speaking of that, yeah, the gargoyle was created by another good friend of mine, Greg Nicotero, and his partner, Howard Berger and Rob Kurtzman. They had a company. They were just starting out. They had been with us on day and uh, came up through the Savini shop, uh, but they were branching out on their own. And they started this little company called KNB Effects. And uh, now they're the biggest shop in the world <laughs> and he's like executive producer of walking dead yeah directing all of them they did the worm and dune and they did the gargoyle and uh just fantastic yeah it was really fun especially revisiting that one specifically that film and, and then that story before i let you go i would love to talk about working with joe laduca Oh, yeah, Joe. I mean, I know you worked with him on a film called Blank Slate. You also worked on television shows that he composed, but I don't know as a television director coming in on a series how much hands-on experience you actually have with the music in, in that circumstance. Uh, maybe you can kind of shed a little bit of light on that aspect of it, being a, a television director working on a series and whether you do have any kind of collaboration with the composer or not, but also just in terms of that you had worked with Joe on a film, just working with him in general, because Joe's already been on the show, a fantastic guy, but uh, obviously a, a talented composer also. Well, he is. He definitely is that. He's got a new movie out with Dean Devlin called Bad Samaritan, and his music is terrific in it. The, the short answer to your question is that in television, directors get, rarely get much of an opportunity to work with the composers. At most, if you're lucky and you're sticking around for post-production, the director will be able to uh, sit in on the spotting sessions with the producers. And that's where you determine how much of the music and where it's going to go is going to be in each episode. The composer is hired by the producers, not by the director. And so the director really takes what he gets. And it's rare, unheard of really, that the director can sit down and manipulate the music in a TV episode. That's done by the post-production supervisors and the producers. As I say, you might have some influence on it simply by being able to sit in on the spotting sessions and give your notes and, and say, I think music should go here. This is what I was going for in the scene and so forth and so on. So my relationship with Joe on Leverage and Librarians, those are the two television shows that I did that he scored, were really like that. Now, one of the things that was uh, – Dean Dublin is a 
wonderful producer and a, a great collaborator. And he has hired Joe many times. And Joe is like his, basically his in-house composer. So what Joe would do, aside from writing the theme for the show, he would write a bunch of different cues with different tones because there's a, there's a certain narrative progress in, in a series that you know that, and you'll hear this if you watch television carefully, you'll hear the same music cues recurring because that's what the lead actor does or that's the moment where the denouement happens, uh, blah, blah, blah. So the composer usually has a bunch of those cues already written and available to be dropped in so that you can massage them and manipulate them. And in that case, there were some opportunities when I was editing the shows to sit with the editor and say, that cue there, that's really good. Or that cue is not quite hitting it. What else does Joe have yeah. in his library? Kind of a toolbox. Correct. And he knew the shows so well. And then, of course, you would sit in the spotting session and you'd say, Joe, we need to transition here or we really don't have a piece for this. What can you come up with? But remember, a composer on a TV show is cranking it out for 12, 18, 22 episodes a season, man. He is just locked in that room composing music forever. And so it's a very tough job. And uh, But in this case, because I like Joe's music, uh, it was easy to, to really sort of collaborate at a distance. Blank Slate was different because I wrote and directed that. And so we had a little bit, it was more like a, it was a film. So it was a more direct kind of communication. But he's a wonderful composer and very inventive. And, he, you know, he did a lot of work for Sam Raimi back in the day. So it's, uh, uh, he's got the chops. Yeah. Blank Slate was more of a thriller. Exactly. Exactly. And so when you sit down with him to start talking about music, just wondering, like, what are those initial conversations like? Someone who has a lot of experience, you know, he's done all kinds of things from horror to, you know, Hercules and Xena to <laughs> you right, know, exactly. a pretty eclectic catalog of music that he's already written, a lot of experience yourself in many aspects of the filmmaking process. When the two of you sit down to start talking about the movie, do you initially sit down for the spotting session or do you guys communicate before that? Well, if uh, in, in most cases... Uh, he's read the script, obviously, so we can talk about it. And then uh, before we really spot the movie, I kind of give him a feeling for what I'm going for tonally, especially in Blank Slate, because that was a standalone. With Leverage or Librarians, he knows what the tone of the show is. Yeah, I mean, he's pretty much established that tone already. Exactly. He's established it. So when we talk about it, I don't talk to composers, other composers, in sort of musical notation. Sure. Unless we're down to the, the specific moment and uh, like we're either in the, the music editing sessions or in the mix, I can speak to him in musical terms. So when I'm talking to him as a director, I try to talk to him uh, or to any composer as just in general terms, talking emotionally, talking narratively. He may have a musical theme that I may say, look, let's recapitulate that here just change the instrumentation and let's say let's change it to a minor key because emotionally it would be great to hear it but it would feel different if you did it that way I mean that's the extent of it I don't really talk specific music you know like wait a minute why are we using that instrumentation or let's orchestrate it differently that's his job and uh, as I say if you got great collaborators 
you hired them because that's what they are. They're great. You want their talent, not your talent imposed on them. Yeah. But when you sit down to talk about, you know, the feel for something like Blank Slate, you know, and you're not talking in terms of musical terms, but, you know, what is that conversation, do you recall, with Joe specifically? I'm not sure I can recall specifically, but it might go something like this, that, hey, man, you remember that scene in uh, uh, that thriller, that James Bond movie, you know, something like that. Or, you know, I, I really feel, yeah, shorthanded. I really feel like this this thing should just be totally rhythmic. It's got a drive. Or think of this scene as a, as a piece of water. You know, you <laughs> want it to kind of come in in waves and keep getting bigger waves and bigger waves until this moment where it should really crash. You know, crescendo at that moment. You know, those that that's about as specific as I can get, Blake. To be honest with you. It's really a a conversation more than specific, like write it like this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I know. It's always fascinated with like the process. You know, for instance, I don't think you've ever worked with them, but I recently interviewed Barry Dvorzan on the podcast and he did the music for like Warriors and also a lot of really great television themes. But he also, in for Warriors, he wrote the song In the City with Joe Walsh. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was trying to talk to him about like the process of writing what is now like a pretty famous pop rock song with Joe Walsh. Oh, yeah. And he's yeah. like, you know, we just we got together, you know, like you would write a song. I was like, yeah, but most of us don't know what it's like to sit down and write a pop song <laughs> with Joe Walsh. <laughs> right, right. You know, so there's always just these little things. And I do my best to chip away and kind of figure out like what really is the process because you know it's something that all of you no matter what job you're doing whether you're the composer in your case we're talking specifically right now if you as the director it's something that's you know it's almost like you guys take it for granted because that's the job i mean that's what you do and you don't really think about it because who thinks about their job in terms of like what do i do i get up in the morning and i go and i sit at my desk or whatever you know they don't think about like the ins and outs of it but uh, i think for me right and i would hope for the people that would listen to a podcast like this i am i'm curious about like what is that like because most of us haven't had that experience you know when you find somebody like joe laduca who is hugely talented but also just like a really nice soft-spoken guy oh yeah huge frame of reference coming from a jazz background but working in all these different genres of music so if it seems like i'm pushing you and you'd like i don't know what to tell you it's only because i'm just poking around to see if i can find oh no i i get it i get it but it is it is a hard thing to verbalize because it's not a verbal process (laughs) yeah yeah you know um i can say to you I want a piece of music that really moves me emotionally. Well, what the fuck does that mean? You know, it's like, uh, (laughs) so, and I can imagine in the case of in the city, it's like two musicians sitting down. They're not talking, they're playing. Yeah. They're just playing, you know, and they're talking to each other with their instruments. They're playing back and forth. That's how they're communicating. So how do you describe that? I don't know. Um, Yeah. Hey man, I love that riff. Let's, let's work on, (laughs) you know, go with it. Okay, and uh, and I understand, you know, and I and like I said, it's it's always just a little bit of poking around because sometimes when you poke in the right direction, something does come out. Somebody will say, "Oh, sure, yeah," like yeah. Then you know, oh, you know, now that you mention it, you know, blah blah blah. But it is. I mean, when you talk about music, unless we're talking about 
specifically in music terms, and we assume that we're talking to an educated audience about music theory and stuff, it is really hard to kind of verbalize that aspect of it. Because like you said, it's not a verbal thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, would it make any sense to the layman if I said to Joe, uh, I was sitting with Joe and I heard him play this figure and I said, why don't you play that in the Dorian mode? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's the Dorian, what? I'm not even sure I can describe the Dorian mode. <laughs> Play it like this, Joe. Unfortunately, and a lot of the composers feel very negatively about the process of temp scoring. You know, some of them that doesn't bother them. Some of them, they, they have pretty negative feelings about it that I talk to. Well, they would if, if a director would say, I like the temp score that I did, so mimic that. Yeah. Of course, any composer would say, well, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> well, then why did you hire me to do it? Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you do temp scores, a lot of times now you're not dealing with the Capitol Library. You're taking Jerry Goldsmith cues and you're using them as temp. And so what do you say to a composer you've hired for however much money? You come in and imitate Jerry Gold Goldsmith's cue here. Well, no, that's. But like you said, sitting around with George back in the days, listening to soundtracks and talking about what you like about it. I talked to several composers about temp love, which is kind of what you're talking about, which is people get married to the temp score. And then whatever a composer does is not going to be good enough. But the idea of, you know, sitting down and listening to music and saying, well, this is the feel. Like even when you said when you're talking about the Book of Blood, you you attempt it, but you said like, this is emotionally what I'm going for. But do your music, but this is what I would like to reach emotionally. You know, that's a totally different thing. But it's also a way of communicating to the composer what it is you're looking for emotionally from that moment in the film. Yes, but I would say that in my case, I would never insist that the composer even listen to the temp score. The reason I do temp scores is because I don't believe producers and distributors can watch a movie without music and sound effects. Sure. Everybody will say they can, but they're lying. Yeah. They can't. <laughs> so, uh, I know that. Oh, too well. Yeah. So the idea of temping a, a picture is simply to make them feel like they're watching the movie. But once the composer comes on board, if he doesn't want that temp music, I don't send it to him. I send him the raw film and just let him come up with ideas. Now we have may we may have had, conversations like you just alluded to in the past like well this is what i like this is the tone i like by the way did you hear that score for shape of water man there was some beautiful stuff in there there are a couple of moments in here that are kind of like that but that's as far as i'll go yeah and then he is supposed to turn around and play me music and his music and then i can weigh in on it at that point yeah well it's a tough job in that you're a little bit of an exception obviously because you you are a musician and you've actually gone through the process of scoring films albeit your experience with scoring films is very different than the vast majority of other film composers right but the music is an aspect of the filmmaking process that really most directors have to just completely rely on somebody else they have to be submissive you know they have to they're at the will of the composer (laughs) in a certain way well that's why you have to choose them very carefully like you would choose your cinematographer or your editor because it is a narrative piece of your project but you can't tell the cinematographer how to shoot the movie i mean i guess if you're a cinematographer yourself you can make suggestions and you know put the light there and key it from this side and you know that kind of decision making yeah yeah but filmmaking is a collaborative process and you've got to surround yourself 
with other artists that complement you because you can't do everything. And the, the composer is one of those people. Before I let you go, just a couple of you know last minute questions. We talked a little bit earlier about were there things that you learned from working with Romero, and I wondered like now, in hindsight, you know you've been working in this business for a long time, and you've worked in all aspects of it as we've discussed before. Are there things that you look at your process, like when you're directing, for instance? Are there things about how you run a set? Or the way you look at shots and stuff where you can point to like, oh, like that's how George did it. I learned that from watching him and I do that because of him. Well, one thing I can tell you is that I learned how to behave on set. I'm not sure maybe that's the right way to put it, but how to run a set from him. As I said earlier, he was incredibly generous. He was incredibly polite and friendly to his crew. And, you know, we've all heard story, horror stories about dictatorial directors and screamers and yellers. And I don't think I'm that way naturally with the people that I work with. But I certainly learned from him how to get the best out of people working together on a film set. So I've taken that away with me. And there are times when I guess I would think, yeah, this is how it was when I was working with George. Yeah. Aesthetically, I'm not sure that I can point to anything in specific. He did used to say to me. And I've carried this around with me quite a lot. None of us actually live up to it entirely. But he would say, you know, I'd rather have a hundred bad shots than one great shot. (laughs) Yeah. Because he knew that if he got into the editing room, he could always, with a hundred shots, he could always figure out how to tell the story. If he only had one shot and it wasn't working, uh, he was screwed. So... You know, I would never say to a cinematographer, I don't give a shit what it looks like. Just give me a hundred shots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's something that I carry with me today, thinking about when I'm on the set, what do I need? What kind of coverage do I need? How would I make sure that I could? And the other thing, and I learned some of this from George and some of this my own style and from a fabulous cinematographer that I worked with, Vittorio Storaro, at one point. You have to know where to put the camera to tell the story. There's a moment in every scene where the camera has to be at a specific place. And I don't mean moving it around on the set. I mean where you've organized your shots so that in the editing room, the camera is at the right place at the right moment. And so every time I approach a scene, I have to look at that and say to myself, what is the key moment of the scene? What is the emotional crux of the scene and where do I want the camera to be for that? Is it a two shot, a wide shot, a single? Is it a close up? Is it moving? Is it, what is it? And I watched George struggle with that a lot. We used to talk about that a lot. So I've always carried that with me too. Yeah. Fantastic. Lastly, you still play music. Do you you have any desire to, to just score? And, uh, you know, right now, I think largely because of companies like Waxwork and La La Land Records and the popularity of these special edition film scores and all this stuff, it has become kind of popular for people like John Carpenter and Goblin and so many people going out to live score and perform concerts. Any of that tempting to you? Well, I still play and I try to keep my chops up. There is a part of me that as I move into different chapters of my life here professionally, yes, I still think about putting the gear back up so that I could score. I'm not, I'm not sure about going out and actually performing scores live. I, I don't know whether I have the skill sets for that. Yeah. But I love to play with other musicians, and I, I still do, not to gig, but just to play. 
And I would love to, uh, I, I've been thinking about, to be honest with you, I've been thinking about putting together some music, not necessarily for a specific film that I'm going to direct, but for some original projects that might be in different forms. I, I can't tell you too much about it because I haven't really worked it out yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But going back to some composing and, and actually doing that again, yeah, I've thought about it a lot recently. And Waxwork has talked to me about, they have a comic company now, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they put the comics out with uh, accompanying scores that come on CDs. They're like little EPs. And so uh, I'm thinking about that kind of a format, maybe even something that would be like a podcast where the story is out there, the fiction, you know, is out there, and then I'm uh, the the score is accompanying it. So I'm sort of noodling that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's so many avenues now because of technology and the internet and so many different outlets for things like that. So there is a chance that we might get some new John Harrison music at some point. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, everybody's getting pretty bored with the old shit. that has been out there for 30 years. <laughs> I don't know. It seems to be doing pretty well. Well, we'll see. Well, John, this was amazing. This was so much fun. I'm so grateful for you to take out some time uh, to do this with me. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. Thank you. I hope this wasn't too torturous for you. No, I hope it wasn't too torturous for you. And listen, man, it was a lot of fun for me, too. You got me thinking about a lot of stuff from the past and about the future. So I appreciate it, Blake. Thanks for inviting me. I, of course, need to thank John Harrison for giving so much of his time and knowledge to the show. He has been one of the composers I get the most requests for. And of course, chatting with him was a real thrill. If you've been enjoying the podcast, the books, Gore to Death 2, more conversations with some of horror's greatest composers, as well as its predecessor, Scored to Death, are available on Amazon from other book retailers or from me directly at scoredtodeath.com. You can also find and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scored to Death. Scored to Death, the podcast, is available on most podcast apps and distribution sites, as well as on SoundCloud and YouTube. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes or on whichever provider you use to listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews will help raise awareness for the show. My other podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, and most other places you find podcasts. And on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Sat Sleepovers. You can find John at JohnHarrisonWriterDirector.com. And I should note that the short clips of music used in this episode were used strictly to put aspects of the interview into context, to audibly illustrate specific things discussed, and for educational purposes. The soundtracks discussed in this episode were Book of Blood by Guy Farley, which is available on CD from La La Land Records, Tales from the Dark Side the Movie by John Harrison, Jim Manzi and Pat Regan, Chaz Jankel, and Donald Rubenstein, is available on vinyl LP from Waxwork Records and on CD from GNP Crescendo. Frank Herbert's Dune by Grand Revel is available on CD from GNP Crescendo. And Children of Dune by Brian Tyler is available on CD from Verez Saraband. Thank you so much for listening to Scored to Death the Podcast, and please come back in two weeks for another in-depth conversation with one of horror's greatest composers. 